Thank you so much. <clears throat> I count it a real privilege to be here. Thank you, Tim. It's an honor. Uh, not only to be able to share, but you gave me subject that has been impactful in my own life to think about this thing of friendship, closeness with God, what it takes to develop it, and so on. I appreciate that challenge to put thought into this subject. And so looking forward to just sharing a few things here this morning. Uh, before I do, a little bit of uh, background. Um, I loved your worship this morning, the songs. I, I have a different feeling these days about the, the worship of the church than I once did. Uh, I am always amazed at how people put words and music together that speak so much of our experience. It's incredible. I had a guy in Saudi Arabia, I still write to him, not regularly, regularly, but pretty often, but he was doing his best to convert me to become a Muslim. I was doing my best to convert him to become a Christian. So he would send me uh, YouTube things of, of uh, meetings in their mosques, these incredible places. And I assume Mecca, I, don't, I didn't actually figure out where they were, and they would have thousands, thousands of people there. And they would all be in some kind of a uniform that they had to put on, and, and then they would kneel in unison. And have you ever listened to the music of a mosque? It'll absolutely depress you. It is terrible music. I know people say music's preference, but this is nothing about preference. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to say there's something very depressing and monotone, and you don't see any women in the whole auditorium. And, and the, when you read the words on the thing about what's actually being sung or chanted, it's more of a chant to me than a song, it's such negative stuff and full of the anger of God and the wrath of God. And after I listened to a few of those and went to the church the next time, I wept. I wept because I said, Jesus, just listening to the music will tell you where you want to be and who you want to serve. Anyway, this morning again, I just love the worship here. Thank you for what you've done. And, and words and music express, you know, and I often said as I get ready to preach someplace, there's a real neat thing when before you start speaking, if somebody was listening, they've already got their money's worth. <laughs> I don't know how you feel, Tim, but it's really neat when you know that there's no pressure on you as a speaker today because God has already showed up. He's already touched lives. He's already, if you've been listening this morning, you've already been impacted. And I just want to say thank you. One other real quick thing. This is something very unusual. My wife said bring greetings from her today. She's not here. She is with her sisters. There's seven girls. Um, and they do each year a retreat where they sew. I have a sister-in-law who's written about six books on quilting. Another one who's won, I don't know how many different prizes. My wife's a very good quilter. They go there and produce something of worth. But I know my place. I told her she can just put me on ice if something happens during the sewing retreat because I know she's not going to want to take care of me if something. So anyway, but <laughs> just so you know, that I am, I'm married to an incredible lady. I love her so much. 
and I'm grateful. But I bring greetings from her. I was given the subject today, friendship, closeness to God, what builds it, what hinders it, how do you develop it, and possibly I should have added, how do you maintain it? I want to read a scripture that you would be very familiar with. John 15, verses 9 through 17. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master's doing. But I've called you friends for all things that I heard from my father I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it you. These things I command you that you love one another. Tim was saying a minute ago that our duty is relationship, not work. I mean, that's a little paraphrase of what he said. And I don't know whether you realize how easy it is to have words without experience. That you know the right language and you know the right verbiage, but you haven't necessarily had the experience. It's not a lot. It gets really old as a Christian to know the right language and not have the right experience. I can remember as a young man, uh, weighing this thing of serving Jesus and becoming a Christian. I thought when I was young, you had to decide between having fun and following Jesus. <laughs> uh, when I share this, I often say to people, a lot of my friends chose fun and still wondering when it's going to begin. And I, I thank God for the fear of God and the conviction that it's better to serve God and now and lose out on the fun and not have to be afraid when you face them. But I'm really, really <clears throat> grateful that it's a lot of fun to serve Jesus. Amen. And it's not a lot of fun to take your own way. And I can't tell you how many people have been so miserable trying to have fun and are still wondering when it's going to begin. But anyway, I had this impression as a young man that if you serve Jesus and it went right, then everything should go right and you should be fixed and life should be better. I, my faith journey began, <clears throat> well, began as a child, obviously, but my commitment to Jesus happened when I was 12 years old. I don't know why we were taught in those days that there was an age of accountability and somehow I computed that that was 12 years old and I didn't really have to worry about this decision until I was 12. By the way, there's no biblical basis for that. If you're under 12 today, don't sit there and think you can wait to commit your life to Jesus. (laughs) I've often said that there are many children that have a better chance to receive Jesus than people 
50 years old who've never heard about them. But anyway, we'll not go into that. That's not my subject today. But I can remember as a 12-year-old boy sitting in about six verses of Just As I Am, and the only one finally that raised his hand said, I'm, I mean, I was 12. I might ha- I might, if I die, I might go to hell. Uh, I don't remember a thing about the sermon. I don't remember anything. I just remember this conviction that came over me, and I'm thinking, now, if I don't go up there, what's going to happen to me? But if I go, maybe finally life will come. So I go forward at this meeting, Dover Central Mennonite Church. The, the preacher was David Showalter, if any of you know that, who that is. And I went forward in that meeting. By the way, that's Richard Showalter's father, for those of you who don't have a connection. He wasn't even a good speaker. Apologize for saying that, but I mean, it wasn't about his speaking. <laughs> so I go forward. What's this? I said he's in heaven. He knows. Yeah, that's fine. A great man, by the way. I love him dearly. I mean, I was an amazing man. But um, <laughs> so I go forward in this meeting, and my uncle Dan. Some of you know Dan Yoder was instructed to meet with me. I was, he was, and he says, Marky, I was Marky in those days. What is it you want to do tonight? And I want to give my life to Jesus. We went downstairs in the basement on a cement floor and on a hard metal steel chair. And I knelt and gave my life to Jesus. Amen. Waiting for the stars to get brighter, the sky to get bluer, the grass to get greener. But it didn't happen. As a matter of fact, in my heart, it felt like it got worse. I, became, I thought when you become a Christian, you shouldn't have any more trouble with your temper and your lust and your, you know, it got worse. At least I was more aware because I believe that might be something of the work of the Holy Spirit. So I went for quite some time in my life trying to figure out. I had a, a some of, if you've heard me share my testimony and some of the things and it's, it's, I'm very redundant. I don't really get that creative with things I share. But I remember coming to the place where a cousin said, I thought you were a Christian, implying you're really not. And I was pretty sure, too, I wasn't. So what do you do? Start over? How do you get to intimacy with Jesus? Well, when you're 15 years old, you start making lots of promises. I hate to tell you some of the promises I've made and some of the things that I did because I'm kind of embarrassed that I thought that would get me intimacy with Jesus. I memorized a chapter a week for a long time. I made a vow, which I still keep, to read my Bible every day. I prayed, I witnessed. There's quite a few other things. At 15, I went to my daddy and I said, Dad, I believe you are my God-given authority, and I promise you that I will always honor you and respect you. You will have the right to veto any girl I date. You'll have the right to help direct my life. Well, guess what happens when you start accomplishing some things that you think are pretty good? What does your life do? It goes like this. Because one day you're really proud you're better than the rest of people, and the next day you know better you're just as bad or the worse than the rest of them. And you have this yo-yo experience. We're talking about being friends today with God. And I'm hoping out of this little story and experience. You know, I believe in each and every one of us is a longing for belonging and intimacy with God 
and with people, by the way. If you go back and read in Genesis, it's pretty interesting how the Lord starts out there and he says over and over, it was good, it was good, it was good. You remember the first time he said it wasn't good? What was it? It's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for man to be isolated. It's not... I'll just read a couple things. I do this once in a while. In addition to God, Adam needed companionship and relationship and connection. And by the way, an animal couldn't provide that for him. Some people like to make pets their family. And I have come to appreciate the value. <laughs> Excuse me if anybody's in love with your pet, but I've come to appreciate the value of pets, but they're not people and they're not going to take the place of relationships with that. In my mind, when God said it wasn't good for Adam to be alone, he spoke the truth that is still very much in place. A person without meaningful relationships, and I'm not just talking about a husband and wife, but as important as that may be. But when we are void and empty of meaningful relationships with others, we are very vulnerable to all kinds of sin issues, moral issues, integrity issues, because something is amiss. I read somewhere that when people have studied mental health and people that are often prone to, um, you know, major dysfunction. When you check their history, they have less than a couple friends that, that really care about them. And so we are made for relationship. But first and foremost, that relationship is with God. One of the more interesting scriptures. Well, wait a minute. As you know, though, the greatest commandment is that we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. If you were listening to the songs, it's reciprocal. We don't just love him, he loves us. Second commandment, though, is equal to, is, is likened to it. It's, it's the second, is you love your neighbor as yourself. What's very, very interesting to me, I don't think you can do one without the other. Actually, to say you love your God and hate your neighbor, the Bible says you're deceiving yourself, you're lying. And what happens ultimately, if you try to love one another without God, lust turns, I mean, love turns into lust and self-serving and pleasure-seeking and, and there's much harm that's done. You know, the subject I was given, again, is closeness, friendship with God. What is it? What builds it? What hinders it? How can I develop it? And as I was saying, part of me says, how do we maintain it? Because what I find so troubling is how easy it is for there to be love and friendship between people at one time, and a little later, it's gone. An old song, love comes and beats on drums and the people sing. How many of you know that song? And a song will do. Love dies, lover cries and crawls away. There's nothing to say to you. And you know what? I hate it. Don't you? <laughs> By the way, I went through a broken heart. It'd be interesting how many of you have. I was 19. Engaged to be married. I better watch it if you're streaming this. I got to be careful what I say, but... <laughs> You know what it's like to have a broken heart and everything that you thought was the way it should be is broken and gone and, man, it hurts. You know what hurts me worse? I mean, that's tough, but I know in my heart people are going to get over that. But, man, it hurts when I see people start out with Jesus 
and you see so much promise and so much hope, and all of a sudden, it's all gone. It's like they've become enemies of the cross. Why? So I go back to my story here a little bit. We come, I believe, to Jesus with so much expectation, don't you think? As I often say to people, I've never yet met the person who signed up for this faith journey saying, I want to be a hypocrite. People come sincerely. They beg Jesus, change my life, make me a new creature. I love out of you shall flow rivers of living water. That any man be in Christ Jesus, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things come to, become new. And we march into this expectations high, saying, Whoo, Jesus, I, I'm yours, and I want it all to go better. And I want to be all that you want me to be. Let me read you another scripture. It's found in Deuteronomy. I'm going to, there's several I could read here, but I'm going to read from chapter 8 just a little bit. Should have had this marked so I could turn to it a little quicker. Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness. Listen to what he says. To humble you and to test you and to know what was in your heart and whether you would keep his commandments. And there's quite a bit more there. There are a lot of people that they sign up sincerely, but they have not embraced the fact that there's a season of testing of your heart. And when the testing gets severe, they just want to walk away. But I want to say to you today, if you want closeness and intimacy and you want to maintain it, you must have the courage to let him be God and face every disappointment that he's going to bring to you without rising up and saying, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you, God? Why did you do what you do? And why would you ever? That you know in my heart, in my heart today, one of the greatest dangers facing God's people is that they don't really believe he's doing the best for them. So I told you at 15, I made all these commitments and all these promises and I did all these things. And, And I was 19. I was going through a breakup of a relationship and some other things were happening in my life that were very stressful. But down deep inside, I kept saying, Jesus, I want more. I want so much more. I don't. I've got the head knowledge. In fact, one day and I've told this story. Some of you almost certainly have heard me tell this story being in a cafeteria in Philadelphia College of the Bible, and there's two guys sitting there, and they got in a heated argument. Do you remember what it was, anybody? (laughs) Good. I love to tell stories, so I hate it when they're all repeats. But anyway, these two guys are sitting there saying, the one guy says, I'm not here in this cafeteria. I'm in heaven. 
He said, I'm not here. My Bible says I've been raised up and I've been seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And you can say what you want to. I'm not here. And the other guy reached over and punched him pretty hard in the chest with his finger. He said, you're here. And then they got the quote in scripture. One guy said, Jesus prayed you wouldn't be taken out of the world. You kept from the evil one in the world. You're here. Guy said, I don't care what you say. My Bible says I've been raised up and seated in heavenly places. I'm in Christ Jesus. I'm not here. Of course, I listened for a while. And, <laughs> and I said, you know what? They're both right. Because I have been raised up. But what's that? I started to ask the Lord. How does that work? How can I experience that? What's this witness of your spirit that I know that this is true? And if you've ever been there, you could, I'm not trying. I don't want you to copy my story. Okay. I'm just sharing it. I started to pray, Jesus, please show me what it is to be in you and how I can experience. And I even one Sunday night as I was getting ready, I was going at that time to Philadelphia College of the Bible. And I was traveling from Harrington to Philadelphia. And um, I told my cousin, James Bontrager, some of you know James. I said, James, please pray for me because I am struggling and I want to know what it is to be in Jesus. I get on a bus that night. There's quite a story to what I'm getting ready to tell you. Part of the reason I'm telling you is because it's very, there's something really, hang on for a second. So I get on a bus and I go to the back of the bus and usually I lay down and slept that night. I couldn't find a place to lay down and I'm forced to come back up and I sat near the front and I sat beside two guys that looked like they almost had halos. They were smiling and laughing and having spiritual conversation. They looked sort of like Amish wannabes, the way they were dressed and their little temps of their hair and beard. One was Christopher and one was Michelle Roy. Michelle was on my side. And I looked at him and I didn't know his name at that point. I said, Michelle, I said, uh, I said sir, judging by the look on your face, you must be a Christian. And it was like saying Sigum to a dog. <laughs> he just went crazy. Oh, yes, by the grace of God, I'm a Christian. And I said to him, what's the secret of the Christian life? He said, Jesus. Yeah, I said, I know. And I've begun to see that Jesus is in me and I'm in him, but I can't figure out how do you make that a reality? How does that work? And he said, it works by faith. I know, I know, but how? No, no, no. Mark, it's by faith. Somehow during the conversation from Harrington to Philadelphia, I told him about memorizing scriptures and praying every day and reading my Bible every day and trying to witness to people. And he told me something that I tell people has changed my life ever since. I can't, I can't wander around very good up here, and I usually do. But anyway, <clears throat> here's what he told me. Yeah, it's good. He said, Mark, that's fine, all that stuff you've done, but memorizing scripture and reading your Bible, and witnessing, having your daily devotions won't change your life. It won't do what only God can do. And he said, you may as well quit worrying and trying so hard. <laughs> Start trusting a little bit. I'm paraphrasing a bit of what he said. But one of the most powerful words he ever gave me were these words. Faith is trusting God to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Taking God at his word. You know, 
some reason that clicked with me and I got a picture in my heart. I was trying so hard and not doing enough trusting. I went to my room that night. I got on my knees. I knelt down and I prayed and I said, Jesus, I'm done. Now, again, I don't want you to try to copy what I've done because for some reason God doesn't do two people alike. He just doesn't. You can't put him in a box. But the next morning I got up, forgot all about my prayer. When I went around my morning, you ever hear people being absolutely obnoxious with cheery greetings and hellos and howdy duties and all that stuff? Well, that's what I was. And about halfway through the morning, I couldn't understand where was all this euphoria. And Oh, it was that prayer last night. And Jesus has invaded my life. And, you know, people, my friends thought I had a mental breakdown. Not might have. I'll take it. <laughs> Falling right in love with Jesus. I'd write long epistles, dearly beloved. And, you know, people thought, I mean, letters to my friends. And they really were sure I had lost my way. How did they tell you that? Told me in plain English. <laughs> Mark, you're not, you're not, your feet aren't on the ground. You know? Anyway, I was probably a little suspicious of myself. I should tell you a little story. <laughs> so, <laughs> I won't tell that story. <laughs> anyway, here's an interesting thing. And I have so many experienced things, but here's an interesting thing. There came a time in my life I, used to, I wrote letters to people, and I talked to people during that little season, and I said, I don't think I'll ever have another bad day again in my life. And I've had bad years since then. Because I just want to tell you today, you don't get one and done and fixed. And there's not one formula, and there's not one experience. It's a lifetime journey with Jesus. You know, and I'm still processing this, but... That was almost 45 years ago that I met Michelle. Then I met his wife later and his children, and we had quite a connection for about two years. And then he was gone. For the last I don't know how many years, I have written letters. I mean, I haven't written letters. I have gone on Facebook. I've tried to find him. His wife was Maria. His son was Jules. His daughter was Shushana. And Michelle and I think, I should be able to find these guys, and I just couldn't find them. Finally, just before I went to India over Thanksgiving, I was looking again, and on Facebook I found a lady, Shushana Roy, and I sent a letter saying, you know, I was highly influenced by a man named Michelle's wife, Maria. They had Shushana and Jules. Been trying to connect with them, and I'm just wondering, would you know them? And I get no response. And I was in the backside somewhere of India when I get a thing on my phone saying, yes, we're the family. And we'd like to connect. But then they ignored me. When I got home, I said, I'll be home. Finally this week, Thursday night, I get a call from Maria. And I wish I could tell you much more about this story. And I started to ask her about Michelle. And you know what she told me? We don't know where he is. We've been divorced for 25 years. Kids have no connection with him. And I sat down after that conversation and could hardly keep from crying. I wish I could have been there for Michelle, but what I'm telling you today is a man who had as much influence on me almost as anyone lost his way.
And you today, you today need to be very careful that you do not allow the enemy to trick you and lie to you about the events of life. I don't know what happened, Michelle. I wish I did know. Let me read. I'm not keeping track of time at all here. Let me read a final scripture this morning. And what I want to say, and as I was putting things together and trying to put words together to share with you some of what has been in my heart during the time of processing this thing, I had this distinct feeling again. I don't have the right words to share with you today. You know, Paul, when he went into Corinth, what did he say? I came to you, and you might as well say I was scared. He, he, had, he had been down there in Athens, or over or up where I don't know what it was, in Athens, and he had this incredible debate with the people of Athens in which he went with all kinds of reasoning and logic, and there's very few results, and he crawls from there into Corinth. That's his next city he stops in. And he says, you know what? I came to you with weakness. I came to you not with eloquence of words. I don't believe for one minute that I can say the right words that'll fix you guys or bring you into faith in Jesus. It's something that the Holy Spirit has to do by calling and drawing and so on. By the way, I went back and looked at what he did in Corinth. Have you ever checked out? It's exactly what he did in Athens. He went and reasoned with the Jews and he held long sessions and talked and talked and talked. But he knew it wasn't talk that changed people. It was the presence of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit. And what's amazing to me is two people can sit under the exact same thing and one person sits there sleeping and the other sits there saying, Jesus just touched my soul. I don't understand it. There's a great mystery to it. I don't pretend that these words will fix anything, but I want you to hear them. Chapter 4. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members, and you lust and you don't have? You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and you war, yet you do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive. Listen to these very well, this isn't the one. Do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says... He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Mm. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humber yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he'll lift you up. And for these closing comments. Do you 
know what it is to be double-minded? It's having two competing desires. I'd like to lose weight, but I like to eat. Now, that might be a poor analogy. But there are an awful lot of Christians who want to please God and still please themselves and do what they want to do. And you may not realize it today, but the secret to coming into, I want to say this with as much simplicity as I can, the secret to coming into this intimacy and closeness and relationship and friendship is literally giving him everything. Greater love has no man in this that he lay down his life. And that's the invitation that Jesus gives to you and me. Unless you give all that you have. And you know, Jesus in the garden, what did he pray? If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Three times. He said, is there any other way but this way? But listen to me. After the third time, if he did not get up and drink the cup, he was going to be outside the will of God. If I can have your attention for just a moment today. Get up and drink the cup. Quit asking if there's another way. Come to Jesus and just say, I'm yours. Everything I have. And don't let Satan lie to you today that it's going to cost you, that you'll not have as much fun, that Jesus might make you marry somebody that's ugly and unfun to be with. <laughs> Whatever it is you're afraid of, that he's going to take you somewhere you don't want to go. <laughs> that's not my Jesus. Trust him. Trust him to do for you what you can't do for yourself. And by the way, you cannot give your will another twist. You can't set another resolution or make another promise. But here's what you can do. Jesus, I'm yours. I don't even know how to do that right, but I mean it from my heart. I belong to you, and I believe it's the path to intimacy with him. Usually when I share this, I spend a good bit of time talking about the story of the Gibeonites. I won't go into great detail this morning, but the Gibeonites were that tribe in Israel that saw all that God had been doing for the nation of Israel. Saw them, heard the stories of coming out of Egypt, heard the stories of the plague, saw them sustain, could watch them from where they lived out in the wilderness 40 years. Can you imagine what that was like? And saying, how in the world are they living? They get manna from heaven. Their shoes don't, clothes don't wear out. They get water from a rock. They must have a mighty God. Watch them as they cross the Jordan River where it's dry. Watch the walls of Jericho fall down and see them conquer Ai. And they go to, they said, that's a great God they serve. We better make a treaty. They don't destroy us. And they deceived them. Remember that story? They took old moldy bread and so on. They come to Joshua and Joshua unwisely makes a treaty. Well, I, lo I love the story, so I'm glad it happened. A couple days later, they come to the Gibeonite city and the Gibeonites come out and say, look, we've got a treaty. You can't destroy us. And Joshua says, why in the world did you do that? And they said, to save our lives. You know what Joshua did next? He said, now you're my slaves. 
we won't kill you because we got to honor our treaty. By the way, God wants us to honor our promises. But in this case, you are now our servants. And I don't know if the rest of you know what happened next, but five kings got together and said, look, if those Gibeonites join Joshua, we're in trouble. We better go destroy them. And if Joshua had not made slaves out of them, he could have let those kings do what he couldn't do. But because they were his slaves, they got on the phone and said, Joshua, come. We're in trouble. And Joshua, listen to me, was duty-bound to defend his slaves who became his slaves through trickery. And God supported it so much that he had the sun stand still. One of the greatest miracles in the history of the world, the Bible says, which I agree with, so that Joshua could defend his slaves. And I had an epiphany when I read that. I said, Jesus, if you defended, if you supported Joshua to defend his slaves, won't you defend me if I'm your slave? And from now on, I will own nothing. Not my marriage, not my children, not my grandchildren, not my reputation, not my ministry, not my health, not my finances, business hopes or dreams. Do you know that's my daily prayer? I say it out loud. Many times, several times a day. And every time I do, I get this picture. Now, he's, it's his problem. He defends it. And there is something I don't know how to explain to anyone. But with it comes an intimacy with our God. A safe feeling. A safe place. Let's pray together. Father, you've been here this morning in ways that go beyond our ability to put into words and understand. But I believe where two or three are gathered, you're in the midst and your Holy Spirit comes to speak hope and life. And So my prayer today is that you'll take words, concepts, ideas, and turn them into realities, into our lives. Lord, we can't make it happen. But with the illumination and presence of the Holy Spirit within us, it's amazing what you get done. And I pray if there's anybody sitting here today who's been saying, if it's possible, let this cup pass for me and have been refusing to actually drink what you have set before them today, conviction will come upon every heart today. And they'll say, I'll drink that cup. No more will I wait but I am yours and everything I have belongs to you. Jesus, would you work that in us, we pray today.